0: Beautifully done. Thank you for being here this morning, and I want to say thank you to your pastor again for the kind invitation to be here, and uh, it's a joy to be at this church. Uh, George and Ann Harvey are members here, and they are precious to me and have been friends to me all the way going back to 1992 when I was at Southeastern Seminary the first time, and then uh, your minister of music, uh, Dr. Boozer, has also just been a constant blessing and encouragement to me Uh, As I returned to Southeastern five and a half years ago. And so uh, this church has a special place in my heart, though I think this is the first time, uh, Jared, I've actually preached here. And so thank you for the invitation. Uh, Our text is found in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1 and studying through verse 4. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. If you do have one of the manuals, if you turn to the back two pages, uh, you'll see that there are two outlines there. God's guidelines for going your kids, which is where we will start, and then how to love your children and let them know it, which is where we will end this morning. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 4, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Many of you in this room will recognize the name Lucille Ball. Uh, During uh, her day, she was the queen of comedy, uh, and many people fell in love with Lucy. Uh, Before she died, not too long before she died, as a matter of fact, she was interviewed on television by Merv Griffin. And in that uh, interview, one of her final interviews, Merv Griffin asked Lucy a series of very interesting questions, and I think you would find her response to be very interesting as well. Lucille, you've lived a long time on this earth. You're a wise person. What's happened to our country? What's wrong with our children? Why are our families falling apart? What's missing? And to those series of questions, Lucille Ball simply said, Papa's missing. Things are falling apart because Papa's gone. If Papa were here, he would fix it. Uh, Lucy was right. In 1960, only 18% of children in America lived apart from their biological father. But today, that number is 40%. 40% of all children in America will put their head on a pillow tonight in a home where their father is not present. Yes, in too many homes, Papa is is missing and yet there's another tragedy it comes right alongside this one and sometimes this particular tragedy even finds its way into christian homes because you see sometimes in a home though daddy is there physically he's not there uh he is tuned out uh he is checked out he he is really completely out of touch with what is going on in the lives of his children Several years ago, a young lady wrote a letter to Seventeen magazine. I think that probably in that letter, she expresses the heartache and disappointment experienced by far too many children today. Listen to what she wrote. Have you ever heard of a father who won't talk to his daughter? My father doesn't seem to know I'm alive. In my whole life, he's never said he loves me or given me a goodnight kiss unless I asked him to. I think the reason he ignores me is because I'm so boring. I look at my friends and think, if I were funny like Jill or super brain like Sandy or even outrageous and punk like Tasha, he would put down his paper and be fascinated. I play the recorder. And for the past three years, I've been a soloist in the fall concert at school. Mom comes to the concerts, but dad never does. This year, I'm a senior. And so it's his last chance. I'd give anything to look out into the audience and see him there. But who am I kidding? It will never happen. Now, parents, let me say something to you this morning, and I want to make sure I don't overstate the case. But I, I have a, an unalterable conviction in this area, and that conviction is this. Knowing that your mom and dad care, knowing that your mom and dad will be there when you need them, sometimes can even be the difference between life and death for a child. Several years ago, Focused on the Family carried this story in their monthly magazine. Uh, It is a true story, and it actually had run earlier in Reader's Digest, and it's one of the most incredible testimonies I've ever read of the difference that the love of a daddy made in the life of one of his children. So before we go to the text of Scripture, listen to this remarkable story. One day a father took his two elementary school-age children for a ride in a pontoon boat. They were traveling down the river when suddenly the motor stopped. When the father looked behind him, he noticed something familiar about the red sweater tangled up in the propeller. His young son yelled, Sherry fell in. In horror, the father saw his little girl now entwined in the propeller of the boat. She was submerged just beneath the surface of the water, looking straight into the eyes of her daddy and holding her breath. He jumped into the water. And he tried to pull the motor up, but the heavy engine would not budge, and time was running out. Desperately, the father filled his own lungs with air and dipped below the surface, blowing air into his daughter's lungs. After giving her air three times, the father took a knife from his shocked son's hand. He quickly cut the red sweater from the propeller and lifted his daughter back into the boat. Although she had survived, her deep cuts and bruises needed medical attention, so they rushed her to the hospital. But when the crisis was over, the doctors and nurses came into her room and they asked the little girl this question, How come you didn't panic? Well, she said, we've grown up on the river and my dad always taught us that if you panic, you could die. And besides, I knew my daddy would come and get me. Do your kids know that? Do your children know this morning that if they did something that disappointed you, that that broke your heart, if, if their back was against the wall, do they know my dad, my mom, they loved me and they would come and get me? You see, here's also a conviction that I have this morning and that conviction is this. I believe most parents, in fact, almost all parents, do love their children. But That's not the issue. The issue is do your children Feel loved by the things you say, by the things you do. Do your children feel loved by mom and dad? And so what I want to do this morning is allow the word of God to inform us in this area. I want us to, first of all, lay what I will call a, a theological, a biblical foundation in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And then we will go to some other passages of Scripture and just kind of lay out, if you like, a, a practical philosophy of parenting that might help get us down the road in relating to our kids in a way that will grow them up for the glory of God. And so note with me, first of all, in the text, the Bible says, we love our children by educating them. Chapter 6, verse 1 tells us it's the proper thing to do. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. That word obey is the present imperative. The imperative, word of command, the present tense, continuous action that's put together. The imperative means God is not asking you. God is not suggesting to children, but God commands children. You obey mom and dad. It's in the present tense, which means this is to be the, the habit or pattern of your life. Not that you will do it perfectly, but that they will do it. Consistently. Many parents blow it here in my opinion. Say, what do you mean? I think you should impart to your children from the time they're little the expectation that they will obey. Oh, oh, they will disobey because they're little sinners. But you need to impart to them that disobedience will be the exception and not the norm, not the rule. Children, you obey your parents. That's what God says. Now, He qualifies that statement in two ways. He says, number one, it's in the Lord. And number two, he says, this is right. I believe in the context that phrase in the Lord means unto the Lord. In other words, help your children understand that when they are obeying you, they're obeying the Lord. And when they disobey you, they are disobeying the Lord. God bless Charlotte and me with four sons. They're grown now. They're they're 28, 28, 25, and 24. But as they were growing up, we always tried to help them understand, guys, listen, ultimately, your obedience, your disobedience, it's not against me, it's not against your mother, it's before the Lord. And when you obey us, you are obeying Jesus. And so it's in the Lord. And then Paul says, this is right. This is the way God planned and ordained. This is the way God established the structure of the family. It is proper that we help our children understand the need and the expectation to obey. But now, secondly, there's a promise. And and let me explain it to you this way. Parents, good parents, it is not enough just to tell our kids what to do. Good parents help their kids understand why. Why? It's not because I told you so. That's not a very good answer. It's not because I'm bigger than you and I can beat you up. That's a really bad answer. No, you need to help them understand why they should pursue a certain kind of lifestyle. And so Paul, being the theologian, goes back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. They're found again in Deuteronomy 5. And he says, look, there is a promise. And the promise is twofold for those children who both honor and obey Mom and dad, look at it with me, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. It is the first commandment with a promise. What's the promise, Paul? That it may be well with you, you'll have a better life. And that you may live long on the earth, you'll have a longer life. Not as an absolute ironclad declaration, but as a general covenant, a general covenant. God says, you obey mom and dad. God says, you honor mom and dad, and I will give you both a better life and a longer life. Now, some of you hear me read that this morning. You say, but wait a minute, Danny, hold on. That may be true if you live in a good home. Uh, that may be true if you grew up, grew up in a good family. But if you knew the mess that I grew up in, if you knew, just to be blunt, the hell on earth that was my experience, you would have to acknowledge these verses, are, they're not for me. They are for folks who have good homes, but not for everybody. In fact, you might even want to say or draw the conclusion, you don't understand. You just don't understand because you grew up in a good home. Well, I did grow up in a good home. I had good parents, no complaints here. But I do think I understand because God gave me a wife who had exactly the opposite experience of me. You see, Charlotte was born into the home of alcoholic parents. And when she was seven years old, her parents divorced. And after moving around from one home to another at the age of nine, Charlotte, uh, her sister, and her brother, all three were placed in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Palmetto, Georgia, just outside of Noonan, just about 25, 30 miles from Atlanta. And Charlotte would live there until she was 18. During those years, she never saw her mother. In fact, the last time she saw her mother as a nine-year-old little girl, she was sitting out on the front porch on a bench. Her mother walked out, slapped her in the face, knocked her off the bench out into the front yard and said, all of this is your blankety-blank fault, turned around and walked back into the house. She saw her daddy a couple of times in the first month that she was there, and then she would not see her daddy again until after we were married. In fact, we'd been married for almost 25 years before she told me this. But she said, you know, I would call my daddy toward the weekend, and I would say, Daddy, will you come and see me this weekend? And she said, my daddy always said the same thing every time. Yeah, babe, I'll come and see you. So on Saturdays, my wife would go out and sit on the front porch of her cottage for two, three, and sometimes four hours and wait for a daddy who never came. He never showed up. When we got married, Charlotte called her daddy. We were back, uh, I'd gone to Bible college in Dallas and had come back home to marry her. And she was staying with my mom and dad. And uh, she called her dad. I'm right there beside her. Daddy, I'm getting married. I want you to give me away. It's kind of quiet on her end for a few moments, and again, as I so often saw, the tears started running down her face, and she said, well, I know you're shy, and so if you don't want to give me away, that's okay. I just want you to come to my wedding. And her daddy, even though he lived only about 10 miles away, said, I won't be able to make it, but I hope you have a great day. And he didn't come. I remember the uh, first time I ever met her father, we were in Atlanta for Christmas. Charlotte had reestablished a relationship with her mom, and so we went over to have Christmas dinner. And then afterwards, uh, we took her daddy back again uh, to the uh, Veterans Hospital in Atlanta, where once more, he was going through a detox treatment for his alcoholism. And he got out of our van and was walking back into the hospital, and I confess to you, I was angry with him uh, for the way he had treated his daughter, my wife. And as he walked into the hospital, I looked at Charlotte and I said, you know, your dad is just pretty sorry. He's not worth much. And she looked at me with a hurt look and she said again, I'll never forget it. Well, yeah, I guess he is. But he's still my daddy. And I will always love him. Charlotte's daddy died lost unless something happened on his deathbed that we don't know. Uh, he died just not being a part of her life at all, and yet in all the years, and we've been married 31 years, I all those years, and even when we were dating, never heard her say anything ugly about her dad. Uh, her mom, by God's amazing grace, is in heaven today. Why? Because one week before she died, in Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, in the ICU unit, because of the love and the prayers, and the just, I won't give up on her. My wife saw her mother come to faith in Christ, and she trusted the Lord one week before she died. Never heard Charlotte say anything ugly or unkind about her mother. You say, what's the end game of all this? The end game is, my wife is one of my heroes. She's one of my heroes. She's a great lady. She's a a great wife, a fabulous mother, people that know her love her. Uh, got good news for you. She's not in therapy. She's not on drugs. Uh, I know you say given her upbringing that she'd be a good candidate for both. I realize that, but she's not. And you see, the reason is to the best of her ability, she sought to honor her mom and dad as God taught in his word and God has honored her. And so even if you live in a hell-on-earth kind of situation. You love your parents. You obey your parents as best you can. You honor your parents, and God will honor and bless you. And the Bible says we love our kids then by educating them in God's ways. But secondly, we also love our children by encouraging them. Look at verse 4. And you fathers. It's a reminder, gentlemen, we are called to that leadership assignment in the home. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. But Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. First of all, Paul says, avoid making your kids unnecessarily angry. Fathers, don't provoke. It means to agitate or make angry. Don't provoke your children toward wrath. But no, be active in giving them counsel, advice. Bring them up. Nourish them in the training, the, the instruction and the admonition, the direction of the Lord. In other words, parents are to be actively involved in their children's lives in teaching them the things of God. Now, again, I know some of you parents say, wait a minute, Danny, hold on. Kids don't listen to mom and dad. You raise four, you ought to know this. All the experts tell us that children are far more influenced by peer pressure than they are parental instruction. And just to be blunt, folks, I don't give a rip what the experts say. They are wrong on this one. They're dead wrong on this one. The fact of the matter is, your kids do care what you think. They do listen to what you say. They pay a lot of attention to what you do. By the way, that's often the problem. Too many parents say one thing and then live in another way, and no wonder their kids write them off for hypocrites because you're guilty as charged. And that's why some people even turn away from the church as they get older because though mom and dad drug them to church, mom and dad made them go to church, mom and dad talked the language of Zion when it came to living it out, it just wasn't there. And their idea is this whole thing is a sham. You say, you really think they care about what we think? Well, I know they do. I came across a survey that's very fascinating a couple of years ago. They were asking a bunch of teenagers this question. If you were stranded on a desert island, And you could have only one thing. What one thing would you want? And here's what they said. 10% said, well, I'd want a TV. Now, just think about that. What would you do with a TV on a stranded desert island? I mean, just stare at it. Yeah. It's not doing anything because there ain't no electricity. And there's like no cable. And I don't even think direct TV is going to reach here. And so, you know, but I'm just going to leave that alone. And I'm not going to think about it too long. Although I have, and it discourages me. It bothers me. But that's a whole other issue for another day. 15% said some books, so we're moving in the right direction. 21% said a computer, well, okay. 24% said some music, okay. But the number one answer was, if I'm stranded on a desert island, I can have only one thing. I want my dad. And I want my mom. The number one answer. Largest survey in the history of American teenagers took place just before the turn of the century. Found out a lot of interesting things, but this one stood out and it's recorded in a magazine article in Newsweek. Here's what Newsweek wrote. I quote, in a recent national survey, teenagers named their parents as their number one heroes. Did you hear that, Mom and Dad? Hey, guys, uh, who's your hero? An athlete? No. Movie star? No. Rock star? No. Politician, are you kidding me? No, he's now I just I'm just playing. Don't don't take it too seriously. I'm you know I'm just playing. Uh, but no. None of those are my heroes. Well who's your heroes? My mom and my dad. My mom and my dad. Why? Because I care about what they think and I listen to what they say and I watch what they do and what they think of me does matter. And so here's what I want to do for the rest of my message, very practically, just very practically. What do you do? What do we do? How do we day in and day out live life in such a way that our kids will know that we love them? Look at that page 31 in that manual, and you're going to see about 12 things there that I'm going to move through very quickly just to give you some insight into what you and I can do day in and day out to love our kids in a way that they will know and understand. Number one, you love them by getting down on their level and entering into their world. I call this incarnational parenting. You say, why do you call it that? Because how do we know this morning that God, our Father, loves us? Answer, he got down on our level and he entered into our world in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. So what you do is this, parent, you step back and you ask, all right, I've got a 5-year-old, I've got a 10-year-old, 15, 18, all right, given their age, given their sex, given their interest, given their maturity, how do they look at life? How do they see things right now in their world, given who they are and where they are, and you love them by getting down on their level and entering into their world? Now, I want to tell you, saying it's easier than doing it, it is not always easy to get into the world of a child. I heard about a little boy. His turtle died, broke his heart, cried all day. Dad came home. Uh, Mom said, honey, he's in the backyard crying. You you need to go back there and do something. And so he goes back there. And sure enough, the turtle's not moving. The little boy's crying. Dad racks his brain and finally comes up with a plan. He says, son, look, I, I'm i so sorry your turtle died. But I tell you what, we can have a turtle funeral. And I'll get a shoebox. We'll put him in there. I'll dig a hole. We'll bury him. And we'll have a little turtle service back here to celebrate your turtle going to turtle heaven, or wherever they go when they die. And I tell you what, I'll preach a little sermon. And since we're going to have a little service, you can invite all your friends over to the house for your turtle's uh, funeral. And since we're celebrating is going to turtle heaven, we'll have a party. I'll get your mother to make a cake. I'll make some ice cream and we'll just have a party to celebrate your turtle's funeral. Then after that, we'll go down to the park and we'll take our bat and ball. We'll play bat and ball. We'll ride some of the rides. And, and son, what do you think if we do all that to celebrate your turtle's funeral? Well, he's still crying, but he said, we can have a party. We can have a party. And I can invite my friends, all of them. And mom will make a cake and you ass. son, will do everything I said. What do you think? if we do all that to celebrate your turtle's funeral. Well, can you believe it? The tears stopped. A little smile came across his face, and he said, well, well, Dad, that'll be okay. And boy, Dad felt great. He'd saved the day, so he took his son by the hand. They began to walk back to the house, and can you believe it? At exactly precisely that moment, suddenly, out of that shell, boom, comes that turtle's head. And he begins to look around and check everything out, and and the dad saw it, and the dad said, well, look, son, look, your turtle. He's not dead. He's alive after all. The little boy, he begins to scream and cry. Kill him, Daddy! Kill him! (laughs) I want to have my party! Now, that may not make sense to you as an adult, but that makes perfectly good sense to a five-year-old little boy. And so it's not always easy, but if you're going to love them, you're going to get into their world and get down on their level. Number two, you love your kids by loving your mate. I love to say it this way, great partners almost always make great parents. Why? Because the number one need in the life of a child related to love is security. Nothing brings security into the life of a child like knowing, my dad loves my mom, my mom loves my dad, and they'll always be here. And so if you'll just love your mate, you'll give your kids about 95 to maybe as much as 99% of what they need. Number three, you love your kids by giving them discipline. They come into the world screaming, where are the boundaries? What's right? What's wrong? I need a little help here. Now, I don't claim to be an expert. Charlotte and I flew by the seat of our pants for a little over 20 years, did the best we could with what we knew and went into the Word, and we did find that a number of things in the Bible, believe it or not, actually worked. And so I'll just share a couple of things. We came to believe in some convictions we have about discipline. You can take them and think about them yourself. Uh, I think this, first of all, number one, give your kids a big playing field and not a little box. A big playing field, not a little box. You say, why? Two reasons. Number one, if you say to your children, You must live in the little box all the time. they won't. They can't. You say, well, why not? Because they are kids. And I at least know this much. God did not design little boys to live in a little box. Go ahead and stick them in there, and they'll tear that thing into a thousand pieces. So you go right ahead, but they're just not wired that way. Secondly, you won't be consistent in your discipline. You won't be consistent in your discipline. And parents, nothing is more crucial than that you are rigorously consistent in your discipline. Therefore, you need to draw the lines where they really do matter. Uh, When our boys were uh, little, we had a rule. You cannot go in mom and dad's bathroom. If you do, you will get a spanking. You say, why? Well, because Nathan, one of our twins, went in there one day and got a bottle of Campophanique, opened it up, and swallowed the whole thing. Swallowed a bottle of Campophanique. You say, what did y'all do? We took him to the emergency room uh, at Parkland Hospital there in downtown Dallas where they took John Kennedy when he was shot. Uh, We sat there for three or four hours, and finally, about 1 o'clock in the morning, a doctor finally sees us, and he walks out, and he says, what's wrong with him? And we said, uh, he swallowed Campophanique. And he says, well, when did he do it? And we said, about five hours ago. And he says, well, fine. If nothing's happened to him by now, he's okay. You can take him home. And they charged us for that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still working through my bitterness and anger about that, but I'm making progress. But so we just decided they just didn't need to go in there. A lot of things that little boys will stick in their mouths, little girls too, that just were of, of no value. And so a few weeks later, Jonathan, the other twin, comes into the bedroom one day, walks over to the edge of the carpet and the tile, just like this, gets his feet as close as he can to that tile and looks at me, and like a little three or four year old can do, just smiles and you know, ain't I cute and just and just so precious? And I said, Son, you know the rule. If you take a step into that bathroom, you will get a spanking. He looks back down his feet, looks up at me, just grins like a little boy can grin and does this, boom, boom. Yeah, just boom, boom. You say, oh my goodness, what did you do to him? I tore his little tail up, that's what I did to him. Because I told him, if you go into that bathroom, you will get Uh, spanking. So wherever it is that you draw the lines, number one, make sure they really need to be drawn there. And secondly, be consistent in your discipline. Let me say one other thing and I'll move on. I believe we discipline our children all the days they're under our watch care. Now when they leave the home, hey, they're on their own now. But when they're still under your responsibility, under your watch care, you're responsible to discipline them but... I believe we adjust the way we discipline as they grow older. You say, why do you say that? Well, listen to what Proverbs 29:15 says. The rod and the rebuke give wisdom. But a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. The rod, when they're young, the rebuke as they grow older will give wisdom. You say, you think it's all right to spank kids when they're small? I think it's not only all right. I think sometimes it's absolutely necessary. Again, I had four sons. Uh, I I could give, and and I've gone to school a long time. I have a PhD. Doesn't mean I'm smart, just means I went to school a long time, all right? So I, though, could get my kids together, and I could give them what I thought was a pretty good, logical, philosophically sound, well-reasoned argument, and for some reason, they just didn't get it. So I got back here, and I have a Hypothesis. I believe their brain is in their buns until they become teenagers. That's where their brain initially starts. So you get back there, and it's amazing that they can suddenly become quite intelligent. All right? But let me ask a question. In the world of the Bible, when did a boy or girl move into being a man and a woman? Answer at the age of 12 and 13. Follow-up question. Think Dad was taking the rod to them when they were 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I seriously doubt it. Now, you may have an extenuating circumstance. It will be the unusual and not the norm. You say, those four boys of yours, when did you stop spanking them? 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. None of us has a memory of a spanking after that. You say, so you quit disciplining them? No, 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 no. I disciplined them till the day they left the house. But I came to understand as young men, and that's what teenage boys ought to be treated like, If you raise the bar of expectation, they may actually climb up there and meet it too, by the way. That's again another discussion for another day. But young men respond better to the rebuke and the restriction. Young ladies will respond better to the rebuke and the restriction than they will the rod as they are now young men and young women. But here's the bottom line. You love your kids, you will give them discipline. Number four, you love your kids by looking at them. Proverbs twenty twelve says, the hearing ear, the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Your most powerful device in many instances in terms of communicating with your kids after your mouth is your eyes. Because your eyes can say to your kids, I'm really disappointed in you. And your eyes can say to your kids, I love you. And I'm so glad God gave you to me. And so you can love them simply by the way you look at them. Number five, you love them by touching them. Ecclesiastes 3.5 says what? There's a time to embrace. So, dads, you got some precious daughters? Good. In a healthy, good, positive way. You hold them, you hug them, you kiss them, you physically affirm them. Why? Because God designed little girls with a need for male affirmation. And God's plan is that she gets it first from her daddy. And if you don't, you'll hurt her. If you don't, you'll wound her. If you don't, you'll probably push her in the direction of a man who may more than likely take advantage of her. So you hold her, you hug her, you love on them because they are a precious gift from God given to you that He expects you to step in and be that strong male masculine figure first in her life. Ladies, word of encouragement. You got boys? Now, you got teenage boys. Here's a good word. Those teenage boys, amazingly, will still let you kiss them in the morning when you take them to school if you just do it in the floorboard of the car, okay? (laughs) As long as it takes place where nobody can see, they'll let you do it. Why? Because God designed teenage boys with a need for tender affection from mom. More roughhouse affection from dad, but whether they be male or female, little boys, little girls, big boys, big girls, God designed them with they need to be touched by mom and dad. Number six, you love your kids by spending time with them. Focus on the family. Took a survey several years ago. I saw a recent survey. Not much has changed on average. Five-year-olds spend about 20 to 25 minutes a week with daddy, but 20 to 25 hours a week with a television set. One more time, I said too fast, didn't I? 20 to 25 minutes a week with daddy. 20 to 25 hours a week with a TV. That may explain this. Reader's Digest, I don't know how they did this, but I've got the documentation. Reader's Digest took a survey of four and five-year-olds, and they asked them this question. If you had to make a decision to give away either your daddy or your TV, which would you vote to give away? And one-third, 33%, said, I'd rather give away my Daddy. You see, parents, love is a beautiful four-letter word. Sometimes it's best spelt T-I-M-E. And you love your kids by spending time with them. Number seven, you love them by listening to them. James one nineteen says what? Be swift to hear. Which means what, parents? Listen to me. Turn off the TV. Put down the paper. Stay away from the computer. Put down the iPhone. Put down the Blackberry. And eye to eye, I know it has killed some of you right now. It's killing me. Man, I, that blackberry should be just, you know, welded to my wrist right there. I, I, I have that thing so often, but I ought to be ashamed of myself. Sometimes you just need to take that thing, get rid of it, so that you can look them in the eye, listen to them with your ears, lock in with your heart, and by giving your kids that kind of attention, you say to them, I think what you think is important. And I am here not to talk, but I am here just to listen. And you love them by listening to them. Number eight, you love them by blessing them rather than cursing them. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Your words. Have you ever stopped to think what it's like to be a little boy or a little girl and hear some of the stuff they hear coming out of the mouth of mom and dad? I've been collecting phrases over the years. Here's how my list currently stands as of the year 2009. Put that down. Stop that right now. Shut up. I don't care what you're doing. Come here right now. Listen to me. Give me that. Don't touch that. Go away. Leave me alone. Can't you see I'm busy? Not like that, stupid. Boy, that was really dumb. Can't you do anything right? Well, you'd lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. Hurry up. We don't have all day. What's the matter with you? Can't you hear anything? I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Never talk to a stranger like that, would you? And yet we fire those kind of words in the direction of our children, and those words don't build up. Those words tear down and destroy. John Trent tells the story that was relayed to him by a grandmother. Uh, The first time her son took his little girl out for a daddy date, he had two girls. He'd taken the older one out for some years, and now this one was about three, and he said, you know, it's time for me to start the same thing with my little one. So they went to a fast food restaurant, they got some pancakes, they sat down, they were about to begin eating, but before they did, the dad thought, you know, this would be a good time for me just to tell my little girl uh, how much she's loved. And so listen to what he said and listen to how she responded. Jenny, I want you to know how much I love you and how special you are to mom and me. We prayed for you for years and now that you're here and growing up to be such a wonderful girl, we could not be more proud of you. Once he'd stopped saying this, he he reached over uh, to get his fork to begin eating, but he never got that fork to his mouth because his little girl reached over and put her hand on her daddy's, so he turned and looked into her eyes, and here's what he heard from his little girl, say it longer, daddy, say it longer, so he put down his fork, and he did, and he told her some more ways that they loved her and appreciated her and Then he reached for his fork a second time. A third time. Four times each time hearing the words say it longer, daddy. Say it longer. John concludes by telling us, you know that daddy never did get much to eat that morning. But his little girl got everything she needed. You see, a few days later she was running through the house, saw her mom, jumped into her arms and simply said this, I'm a really special daughter, Mommy. My daddy, he told me so. And we love our kids by blessing them rather than cursing them. Let me hurry. Number nine, you love your kids by having fun with them. Folks, bottom line, my philosophy of parenting can be summarized in two statements. Number one Teach your kids to love Jesus, and number two, have fun with them. And that's the whole thing right there. Teach them to love Jesus, have fun with them, and most likely everything will turn out okay. I at least know this. When you get old and they get grown, they'll come back and see you on holidays, and they won't dread doing so. Why? Because they will have memories of my house being a fun place to be. So just make your house a fun house. If your home is a Grand Central Station with kids coming in and out all the time, that is a great compliment to you being paid by your children. Number 10, you love your kids by nudging them out of the nest. Here's how it works. You get them for about 18 to 20 years. You pour your life into them so that when you're not around anymore, listen to me now, so that when you're not around anymore, they'll be okay. There's the whole goal of parenting right there. Pour your life into them. So that when you're not around anymore, they'll be okay. Which means what? You can't smother them. You can't micromanage them. You can't protect them. Some, some Christian parents so place their children in a bubble that's not the real world, that when it's time for them to step out into the real world, they ain't ready. They ain't ready. Well, I want to keep them away from... You can't keep them away from everything. That's God's business. Your business is to mold them and shape them as God's representatives so that when you're not around anymore and it's just them and the Lord, they're okay. Which means you've got to give them opportunities to bloody their nose and skin their knees and elbows. You've got to give them responsibilities that are commensurate with their maturity and age so that they learn to become good, wise, godly decision makers without you being there to tell them what to do. And that's what good parents do. They nudge them out of the nest so that they can grow and fly for the glory of God with their own wings. Number 11. You love your kids by admitting when you're wrong. Some of you need to write in your notes there are seven wonderful words in English that when put together can go a long way in restoring some broken relationships. You say, what are those seven words? I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I am sorry. Did you notice that the word but doesn't follow? I'm sorry, but forget it. You're going to try to justify your ridiculous, sinful, pathetic behavior. And so just, just forget it. Just forget it. No. If you are confident in who you are in Christ, then you know that sometimes you blow it and you blow it big time. By the way, your kids know this too. They've been watching you, like, for a long time. And so they know, by the way, that you're not perfect. They know that you don't always do everything right. And so if you'll just simply say to your children when you mess up, I am sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? There are many men in this room, men in every church that I've ever been in, that have never told their kids they were sorry. And they, because of pride, say, well, you know, if I, if I admitted that I made a mistake, they'll think less of me. No, they think less of you because you don't. When you tell your kids you're sorry and you ask for their forgiveness, they don't think less of you. They think much more highly of you than you would ever imagine. Finally, you love your kids by introducing them to a perfect parent. You say, Danny, I I can't be a perfect parent. Well, I know that. I can't be one either. We can be good parents. We can be great parents. But stay with me now as I close. Hear me. I don't care who you are this morning. God designed you like He designed me with a need for a relationship with a perfect parent, a perfect heavenly Father. And your life will never be complete without that relationship with that perfect heavenly Father. And your life will never be the same if you have a relationship with that perfect heavenly Father. You see, the quote Paul Harvey, I need to tell you the rest of the story about Charlotte. How did Charlotte become this very godly lady, this very wonderful wife and mother that I've now been married to for more than 31 years? I'll tell you how that happened. When Charlotte was about 10 or 11 years old, on a Sunday morning, just like this, at the First Baptist Church in Fairburn, Georgia, she gave her heart to the Lord Jesus as a little girl, and the Lord Jesus gave his heart to my wife, and on that day, God became her perfect heavenly father. And if you were to talk to my wife after this service today, and you were to say, Charlotte, I'm going to ask you a question. When you got saved, what was the most wonderful thing about getting saved? Having all your sins forgiven? She would say, no. Oh, I know. Going to heaven when you die? And she would say, no. And so you might be, well, okay. Okay. What was the most wonderful thing about getting saved? She would say, when I got saved, I got a new daddy. And my new daddy, my heavenly father, he loves me. My new daddy, my heavenly father, made a promise to me he's never broken. And that promise was this, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And you see the wonderful, wonderful word of the gospel. Is that what he did in her life, he'll do for any one of you this morning if you will simply ask him. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment.